Welcome, everyone, to episode 122, Cord Blood Cells. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? I'm doing all right. I have a small, short anecdote to tell just to illustrate how we've crossed the Rubicon here with CRISPR. I was talking to a graduate student the other day, and she told me that she was a listener to the to the podcast. And I was like, wow, that was the one Rubicon that we crossed. We've got a listener. Nice. But the other thing is <laughs> one, one listener. There is we go. that she was telling me how she was watching, much to her embarrassment, she admitted to watching Rampage in the theater. I don't know if that might have skipped everyone's radar. Movie with The Rock where he's fighting these huge animals. And in the movie, they say that the Rampage animals were made. How did they get made? CRISPR. CRISPR. Can yeah. you believe it? So this is it, guys. CRISPR is in the lexicon. So, you know, get used to it. Everything is going to be CRISPR nowadays. Boom. Yeah, the premise for the movie, I saw a trailer for it, and I groaned out loud, and then I went, <laughs> of course I have to see it. <laughs> It's going to be so bad. <laughs> yeah, but you got to be educated. Kik, I admire you. You're like a movie critic. You see the bad ones. You see the good ones. It's all for the good of yeah, science. It's so funny, though. When the science is bad, I can't get past it. And I sit there <laughs> yeah. and I watch the movie and I just like it breaks the fourth wall. And I'm uh, like, man, why do you have to did science bad? Why did you science sullied. bad? You sullied the science yeah. with your rampage nonsense. But hey, it's The Rock. He's going to be the president one day. Watch. Mark my words. <laughs> That'll be pretty amazing. Yeah. We are headed down that path. Anyway, everyone, let's head down the science path, the real science path, the path of not using science badly in movies, but in reality well. Everyone, make sure you check us out at StemCellPodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at StemCellPodcast on Twitter, StemCellPodcast on Facebook. And don't forget, if you're not subscribed already, why not? Get there. iTunes, Stitcher. You'll have those new episodes downloaded automatically to your device. We have a great show today. In addition to our usual science roundup of science and stem cell news. We have two excellent guests for you. Today, we are talking to Dr. David Knapp, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oxford and PhD student and co-author on a paper they've published together, Colin Hammond. And we're going to talk about their recent publication on human cord blood cells in nature cell biology. That's right, guys. We're talking about human cord blood, blood, blood. We keep it bloody on the podcast, and that's because of blood. me. I love it, Red. <laughs> anyway, before we get into that, I'm going to tell you again about one of our posters. This one's really appropriate, though. You might need help remembering all the myriad surface markers that characterize megakaryocyte progenitors or myeloid progenitors or T cell and blah, blah, blah. You got to check out this hematopoietic stem and progenitor cell phenotyping wall chart, okay? You put it up on your wall. You got a quick reference to HSPC, that's hematopoietic stem progenitor cell phenotypes, and frequencies, that's the key, frequencies in core blood. Gives you an idea and impresses upon you how rare some of these cells are and how most of our blood is made up of some stuff that doesn't really do much of anything. This wall chart also provides an overview of various assays used in identification of different progenitor cell subsets. All right, so all you special stem cell podcast listeners can get a free copy at stemcell.com slash HSPC phenotyping. Okay, get there. And now let's get to the science roundup. Kiki, please. All right. And following on your fun intro there related to CRISPR, I am going to start us off with a CRISPR story. Yay. Not a crispy story. It's a CRISPR story. So two studies came out within the last couple of weeks related to CRISPR and its original use in bacteria, not the gene editing use that we are putting it to today, but what it originally biologically functions for is as 
bacterial defense. The CRISPR-Cas system is used by bacteria to protect themselves from viruses called phages. So it's kind of this bacteria-viral arms race, and phages have actually come up with their own defense to defend themselves against the bacterial CRISPR-Cas system, and it's an anti-CRISPR system. They have these molecules that researchers are calling anti-CRISPR molecules, or ACR, or ACR. I don't know what exactly is the phraseology. But these anti-CRISPR molecules, they interfere with the CRISPR-Cas system. And so when the phages interact with bacteria and begin to attack them, initially, small amounts of these virus particles don't work well on their own. It's as if there aren't enough of them. And so it's a dose response curve almost that there's a point, a threshold at which there are enough viral particles producing enough of these anti-CRISPR molecules that with teamwork, the phages can work together to overcome the CRISPR-Cas system and actually do whatever they're going to do in their attack of the bacteria. A researcher, Marianne Landsberger, from the University of Exeter's Penryn campus, who's also a first author on one of these papers, says a high enough number of viral particles can tip an attack in their favor. It appears that a strike against bacteria with viral number below this tipping point leads to extinction of the phage invaders. And if the amount is exceeding that tipping point, it allows the phages to take over the bacteria together simultaneously or sequentially infecting a bacterium. And so there's almost altruistic factor at play where one phage or group of phages can come in with an initial attack that fails, but it weakens the bacterial CRISPR-Cas system, and that enables a second wave of phages to attack and be successful. Wow. That's like General Patton stuff. Yeah. So it's this bacterial phage warfare strategy going on. And the reason this is really important is not just to understand how the bacterial phage ecosystem, but also to think about how we can more successfully use phage therapies in our own antibacterial medical uses. So more and more recently, researchers are, and doctors are trying to determine how we can use the attackers, the things that attack bacteria in nature, to actually attack them in our bodies when we have antibiotic resistance going on. So what are other strategies we can use and how can they be most efficient? And so understanding that there is this tipping point can actually help doctors and researchers figure out the best dosage of phages to potentially give a person in using these kinds of therapies. It's an arms race. Yeah. I'm not messing with the phages. The phages sound like they've got a coordinated assault. I'm just going to, I'm not going to war with the phages. Don't go to war with the phages. Don't do it. But in other very interesting news, there has been life on this planet for a very, very, very long time. Thinking about bacteria there is a new study published July 23rd in Nature Geosciences, a finding of the oldest signs of land-based life on the planet that has yet been discovered. How old would you guess that is, Dalen? Billion? <laughs> <laughs> More. <laughs> yeah. No. I thought I was just totally overshooting it and stealing your thunder by guessing a billion, but I was Failing. All right. Well, then I'm going to say 10 billion. No, that's too much. That's too far back. <laughs> but this research that was just published, looking at some rocks in the Barberton Greenstone Belt in South Africa, this is where some of the oldest rocks on earth are preserved. They haven't, normally there's crustal activity in which rocks are recycled back into the magma uh, within the mantle and then come back up at various places. But there are some places on our planet where this really hasn't happened, that have been very stable for a long time. And this area in South Africa is one of them. And so what they have found, it's molecular evidence, really, of chemistry, of life, going back 3.2 billion years. What? So previously, the oldest visible fossilized remains were about 2.7 
billion years old, and that was found in South Africa and also in Australia. Last year, researchers looked at rocks in Australia, and they think they have 3.5 billion-year-old volcanoes, but it's kind of questionable and a little controversial. This study, though, is definitive, showing that there was extensive exposure of continental crust on the Earth's surface 3.2 billion years ago, and so really nailing down this date to be about 3.22 billion years old for these rocks and the fossilized microbial mats that they have found. So that's the first life on the planet. That's what we're talking about here? Not in the sea, I see. Yeah, land-based. The first land-based. And so this says, at 3.2 billion years, we see evidence of differences in mat-forming microbial communities, suggesting that some were likely better adapted for life in the ocean versus on land. And so there's a difference in the metabolism from these different environments that had already appeared. And so the question now is whether the early Earth might have already localized pockets of free oxygen in the atmosphere that generally lacked it. So at that point in time, there wasn't a ton of oxygen all over the place. And so were there pockets of oxygen that allowed this kind of life explosion and differentiation? It's a lot of years, Kiki. I I can't even conceive of it. It's hurting me to think (laughs) about it. So long ago, life, it abides, everybody. (laughs) It's been around and it will be around. But thinking of the life that's already on the planet, some life is endangered and that is pretty much our fault. But to try and make things a little bit better, researchers are trying to help some of these species. And one of them is the endangered white rhinoceros. And so what researchers have reported in the 4th of July issue of Nature Communications is that they have created a hybrid species, a hybrid embryos of endangered white rhinos. For the first time, white rhinoceros embryos have been made in the lab. Scientists injected preserved sperm from a male northern white rhino into eggs of a southern female white rhino, which is a related subspecies the northern and the southern being different subspecies. And so the embryos were incubated until they began to differentiate and they could potentially be implanted into a surrogate mother. So this is basically, most likely what's going on is the subspecies are separated by distance, not necessarily biologically, but ecologically and environmentally separated. And so that has led to their subspeciation, bringing them together. The gametes are still able to reproduce together. And so this is basically IVF for rhinos. Mm. That's what they're working on here. And so they say that this is one of the really crucial steps to eventually producing new rhino calves. And eventually they hope to implant similar embryos into female southern white rhinos or hybrid northern southern white rhinos that already exist. I feel so weird about this because I guess the rhinos, they deserve a chance. But part of me makes it makes me feel feel a little bit icky like i wonder if that rhino really cares about being made i'm sure he'll be happy he she'll be happy to kick it in the world but it seems like we're maybe pushing it i don't know why i'm not i'm not gonna put my foot down on that kiki okay but i feel a little weird okay please respect my weird feelings i respect your weird feelings i mean this this is happening for natural but also unnatural reasons because the white rhino is being pushed out of its habitat by human development by also uh, the hunting of the rhino for the horn. Mm. There are reasons that go beyond the biology of the animal for its endangerment. And so if we can conserve them, that's fantastic. But if we're conserving them for a situation in which it's almost impossible for them to survive, that's not fair to the animal either. So these are big ethical considerations, I think. That's it, Keek. I think that's what you nailed my weird feeling is that you know, maybe we should spend more time not trying to kill them. We're like killing all the other ones. And then we're like, oh, we're going to put back this. It just seems like Sisyphean and naive and also at the same time hubristic. It's like all these human elements all rolled into one big white rhino. (laughs) One big white rhino. Yeah. And my final story for the roundup this week is colorful and has to do with brains because, you know, I love the brains. Scientists have published online July 19th in Cell 
their new high-speed electron microscopy imagery of the fruit fly's brain cells. And they've made a colorful map of the fruit fly's brain. Uh, they took 21 million nanoscale resolution images of the brain of Drosophila melanogaster, favorite of uh, genetics researchers around the world. They tried to capture every single one of the 100,000 nerve cells that are contained in its brain ganglion. And this is the first time that the entire fruit fly brain has been imaged in this kind of detail. The data set is going to be available as a roadmap to determine which neurons talk to each other and how in the fly's brain, according to Davy Bach, who is at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Janiella Research Campus in Virginia. The mapping is not complete, however. Neurons with cell bodies close to each other are colored the same hue, and this demonstrates how neurons born in the same place tend to send their axons and dendrites out in the same direction as well. But they're enabling new discoveries about the fly brain. For instance, the neurons that help flies make memories. And Dave Bach and his team have been tracing these neurons that send messages to and from the mushroom bodies and are involved in learning and memory. And so they've discovered in this process a new type of neuron that talks to the cells in the mushroom body that hadn't been isolated before. So this is pretty exciting stuff. Just looking at the brain and being able to see the different neurons is elucidating the function of those different neurons and will teach us more about the fly brain and then later, our own. To get into cell, it's got to be just a brute, I mean, 20 million images of 100,000 nerve cells. To be a descriptive study that gets in a cell, it's clearly they, they levered a huge amount of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, to do this, but it really is just a picture of the fly brain. Am I wrong? It's a picture. It's a What's picture. What's going on? It, it's, it's a, a picture. picture. That's right. right. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, it's I don't a think a picture. It's a pretty picture, and a picture tells a story. Uh, it's a worth a thousand words, or I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's 21 million pictures here, so this is like you know all the words in the history of in four billion years worth mm -hmm. of words. All right, so that's that, huh? You going general, I'm going stem cell. Are we ready? Are we ready? Am We're I ready? ready. Tell me about the stem cells. All right, I'm going to tell you about the stem cells by way of, I'm just going to gloss over this because it's an intro circling back again to our rampage intro, CRISPR crossing the Rubicon, but maybe moving a bit fast as, you know, impressive science always tends to do. There was this huge study that I'm not going to cover because everybody's probably read it, Nature Biotech. The CRISPR show that resolution of these, you know, the CRISPR NICs oftentimes, very often leads to large deletions and complex rearrangements. So we got to think about how we're using CRISPR. And that leads me to the first story, because God knows we don't want any rampage animals or much, you know, Dwayne Rock could be present. if We use CRISPR the wrong way. You don't know what will happen. This leads to my first story. It's about the mutational burden of human induced pluripotent stem cells. It's a similar idea unintended consequences of changing these somatic cells into pluripotent stem cells. So now we know the therapeutic potential of these iPS cells is well recognized. Everyone's going after it. But the mutational burden in these cells hasn't been completely characterized. Okay, so we know it comes from reprogrammed somatic tissues, oftentimes skin cells. And just think about it, your skin exposed to the ultraviolet radiation your whole life. So you probably have some pre-existing mutations that are not in your germline you weren't born with that may be contributing to the iPS cell pool. And now previous studies have partially characterized somatic mutations present in iPS cells, showing that they exist essentially, but there hasn't been really a quantitative assessment of the degree of mutational burn. And this is important. There's a thousand iPS cells that are out there worldwide that are like being used for various purposes not just in you know research labs. So it's important to figure out what the degree of this burden is. And a group has done it in Cell Reports recently. This is a group from uh, UCSD School of Medicine, uh, Kelly Frazier, who's a director of the UCSD Institute for Genomic Medicine, a founding chief of the Division of Genome Information Sciences. In the research, what they did is they used whole genome sequencing, combined that 
with transcriptome and epigenome data to get a pretty comprehensive view of the mutational burden in 18 iPS cell lines that are publicly available at Y cell. And, you know, the bottom line is they showed that there was two previously identified types of somatic mutations. These are the clonal mutations that are derived from the parental cells. So like in the skin, getting hit by the UV your whole life, and then that leading to a kind of founder mutation that then gets expanded when they transition. Also generic copy number alterations from a similar root cause there. But there's also two new classes of mutations that the researchers identified, and that's the actual damage in the cell caused by the UV, initial UV radiation, which is different from the founder mutation that I just described. Uh, read the paper. I don't have the details on that. My apologies. And the other, though, I think more notable one is these subclonal mutations that aren't present in the parental line and that they occur and proliferate and expand during the reprogramming process. So I think it just it gives an eye towards the whole spectrum of abnormalities that can arise in these iPS cell lines at the genetic level and how they can be introduced at multiple points during their development. So a note of caution on iPS cells, I think everyone has come around to a cautious approach already, but just another reason and more quantitative to uh, be careful there. So I don't know, iPS cells, Keith, you make the call. <laughs> you want them, you got them. You make the call. You make the call. Put it in your body. Yeah. No, thanks. I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny to me. I think it's interesting how quickly the tempers change in terms of whether or not you would use these therapies. Now it's CRISPR, but in a year, I might be wary of using CRISPR too. Let's see. There's another thing has been long in development, and we've touched on a bunch of times. This is this idea. Remember Nicholas Rivron? I love talking to my man, Nick. Oh, yeah, he was great. He was so good, and he talked about these blastoids, right? They took mouse embryonic stem cells and mouse trophoblast stem cells and just smushed them together, and they formed these blastocyst-like things, and they implanted, and it was awesome. But, you know, he wasn't the first to the party. Uh, Magdalena Zernica Goats who's been in this game for a while. In fact, I would say she kind of predated his approach there of combining embryonic and trophoblast stem cells. Years ago, she was doing this, or at least a couple years ago, she was making these kind of pseudo embryos using scaffolds in vitro. Since then, she's also been famous for making this ex vivo human embryo. She got human blastocysts to kind of pseudo implant and developed around day 14 and form early embryonic structures. And now She's going for the gusto. This is the idea of creating a completely artificial embryo out of mouse stem cells and their derivatives, with the idea being that you could, in the future, make human embryos just out of cells without using any gametes, which is very far-fetched, okay? <laughs> the team, again, led by Magdalena zernica Goat. she's at Britain's Cambridge University. Like I said, they've previously done these simple versions that involve just mouse embryonic stem cells and trophoblast trophectoderm stem cells in a three-dimensional scaffold, but now just published this week in Nature Cell Biology, so they added a third cell type in there, which is this visceral endoderm, which is the other cell type that's present in pre-implantation embryos. So they've got all the players, and we talked about this with uh, Dr. Rivron about his next step, and he said it. My next step is I'm going to add the third type, and then we'll have something that's maybe the embryo. Well, I'm sorry, my man. Yep. But Zernica goes, she beat you to it. But we all knew she was going to anyway, including you, Dr. Rebron. And you'd be the first to applaud her. I'm surprised you weren't on this paper, actually. But I'm sure Dr. Goetz would uh, acknowledge your significant contribution. Anyway, they were able to get these early stage embryos to develop, but not implant. Okay, so Nicholas, you still got plenty to do there. I think you could incorporate your work in hers and boom, you'll have little mice walking around and didn't even come from a gamete, which is so twisted that I don't know what to think about it. Kiki, would, I mean, yeah. let's just be clear. The idea that these are going to actually form organized embryos remains to be seen. If you look in the pictures That's exactly in it, Dr. Yeah. Zernigo's paper, they look kind of like it, but and they undergo some of the cellular morphogenic movements, but they're not by any means yeah. looking like the normal embryo, and they probably wouldn't implant and form a conceptus either, but I think it still raises the theoretical possibility of an attempt at this. And I mean, it's mind boggling. 
to think that, you know, you could completely divorce yourself from the whole germ cell and get a human being. But, you know, the theoretical possibilities there. Let's go from stem cells. I mean, and this is something that way back people have been kind of like the science fiction aspect of stem cell technologies, stem cell biology, you know, what can we do with them and what will they do? And I don't know, I think that endoderm, they might have gotten the third layer in there, but if it's still not quite normal, they're missing some pieces. Mm -hmm. They're getting there. They're not all the way there. They need, I mean, it has to be able to implant. It has to be able to go through normal cellular development to really be considered normal, a replacement. And so we're not there yet. Lots more work. We're not there yet. I don't think we're ever going to do I just, too, too many people are going to get upset about doing that in human. But I would be really impressed to see it done in mice even. And I, I put myself out there and or said, rhinos. I don't think it'll ever happen. Or <laughs> white rhinos. Or white rhinos. Hey, why not? Or, why not? Or, you know, on my other podcast, my co-host talks about uh, bringing back the mammoth. You know, maybe. Oh, my God. It's too hot. <laughs> too hot for the mammoth. It's yeah. an act of cruelty. <laughs> But anyway, listen, I put myself out there as the naysayer saying we're never going to get an embryo that actually develops from just cells in a dish. And I would love to be proven wrong, but I'm certainly not going to hold my breath. And 20 years from now, I'm going to be glorifying and being right. Mark my words. And you're, unless I'm wrong. <laughs> and you will glorify in it, too. I know. If, if I'm wrong, I will just ignore it, like always. All right, moving on. We talked a lot about kidneys. It seems like the first thing to get into therapy from stem cells, pluripotent stem cells, may be kidney, although it's probably blood. You know, I love the blood. But everyone's doing these kidney stories. And I got another one for you. This is out of stem cell reports. Okay, so the starting point here is we've talked about all these papers where they're trying to scale up the kidney differentiation. They can get things that look like kidneys. They remember uh, Bino was looking at uh, polycystic kidney disease. So all this stuff so cool. They've now got it to the point where they could scale up and do these cheap protocols that don't use recombinant proteins, just small molecules. They optimize the protocols. They do the disease modeling, et cetera. But there's still problems with scale. This paper was meant to address that. It was uh, by Alan Davidson's group, which is in New Zealand. Interesting work out of New Zealand. And essentially what the method is, is they formed these embryoid bodies that everybody does a similar approach, but they did in all small molecules. So just this uh, Wnt activator, CHIR, 99021, CHIR, which is commonly used in the field. And they, instead of using FGF9, which is expensive, fibroblast growth factor 9, they use just KOSR. So it's a really simple approach, which is not unprecedented, actually, in terms of the recipe. But what they added was this spinner flask scaled growth this bioreactor approach that resulted in organoids that developed nephrons that contained podocytes, proximal and distal tubule segments, and presumptive collecting ducts and endothelial cells and interstitial cells. So these are all the goodies that you get in a kidney as it's developing. So it's pretty comprehensive in terms of the cell types. And the comparisons with human fetal kidneys showed that they very closely correspond to this late capillary loop stage of differentiation. Not only that, but when you expanded them for the long term, you got these interstitial cells that converted into pro-fibrotic myofibroblasts, okay? And these are the cells that we care about in fibrosis. When you get people with kidney renal fibrosis, it's the interstitial cells undergoing a transition to myofibroblasts. So this is going to be a great way of studying acquired or familial disease. And finally, they show some mechanism here uh, showing that if they disrupt HNF1B, which is a gene that's been implicated in congenital kidney malformations, they get a agenesis of these kidney tubules that they typically get. So this kind of points towards the value of this platform for studying kidney development and potentially birth defects. So it's like a technical platform type approach. But I think the real takeaway here is that they're moving these platforms to scale. And the next thing, you know, is going to be these big pharma companies doing these massive allocations of resources to try to understand and find new drugs to make billions of dollars on. So I think that we're on the cusp here of maybe making the transition from iPS cells as regenerative 
clay, the IPS sells as more of a disease modeling type thing. And this is kind of integral to that shift. Although I'm not saying we're not using the cells for regenerative approaches, Kiki, but come on. Yeah. I mean, cells are alive. We got to start <laughs> with something less risky. Yeah. I mean, these organoids are so useful for the research purposes. And so it's, yeah, drug development for therapeutic development. I mean, at some point, though, I mean, there are disorders, maybe you can control them with drugs, but at some point, people need transplants. So where do you get the organs? You have to do the regenerative aspect in parallel. Yeah, it's true. I refer everyone back to Bino. The interview with Bino, he really had such a great answer, and I can't remember it exactly, but I tried to put him on the spot with the regenerative therapies, and he made me feel like a total simp. So <laughs> go listen to that and get a kick out of it. Last story I got for you is pretty murky. It's hard for me to explain. I kind of get it, but probably not completely. So I apologize to all you people who really get it. And I have to listen to it. This is about enhancers, okay? And enhancers, the enhancosome, I'll call it in a Seriously? Yes. Yeah. Like everything is kind of- Enhancosome? Everything's gets a some. <laughs> so does the enhancer. Oh my gosh. I think that exists, by the way. I didn't make that up. The enhancosome, someone has to have coined that. If not, I want the royalties. So look, <laughs> this is it in a nutshell. There's this whole- enhancer idea you know you look at an enhancer it's a it's a genetic element that regulates gene expression you know on a spatiotemporal kind of epigenetic you know scale so the enhancers they're near to the gene but they're not the exact promoter element they're not the coding sequence they're nearby and they can recruit these transcription factor binding elements that can cause augment expression they're often correlated with these histone modifications the H3K4, H3K27, the whole bivalence idea. The bottom line here, and I, I mean, I just have to tell you guys to go read it because what they do is they they have like a global way of not just predicting, but verifying with this chip star seek, which is a tour de force of all these technical applications. It allows them to verify these enhancers on a global basis. And what they did here is they verified and sought out the classic bivalent genes that were differentially bound by H3K4, K27, as well as OCT4 and NANOG, all the big players in pluripotent stem cells. And they used this technical approach that combined CHIP. So they used CHIP, we're using those antibodies against NANOG, OCT, K4, K27, they found the sequences of the genome that those transcription factors bound and that those chromatin modifiers bound. Then they subcloned those sequences of DNA in a high throughput way. 350,000 of these regions randomly from the chip output. They cloned them into this mass reporter assay that would essentially, when the enhancer was there, it would recruit a transcription factor that would cause GFP to be upregulated. And then they could sequence the GFP and see what that specific enhancer sequence was because it was fused to GFP. A Baroque explanation. Please look at the figures. The point is, is that they were able to verify and target and verify 350,000 genomic regions in parallel. And it gave them a lot of insight into what the targets of Nanog Oct4, K4, and K27 were. In fact, surprisingly, only a minority of regions that were marked by those four factors function as enhancers. Even though if you look at a global view of what the enhancers are, it'll tell you a bunch of things. The reality is, is that only a subset of those really act as enhancers. And that's the takeaway. This approach will allow you to take any transcription factor essentially in a specific cell type or cell identity and verify what are the predicted enhancers and tell you which are the actual functional enhancers. So. For those who are interested in technical papers and like the, the future, a new assay that you might be able to apply on your cell type, look into it. It's called Chip Star Seek. There's a, like a million different things encoded in just those few letters. Check it out. Cell stem cell. You'll go to sleep and you'll wake up with a brilliant hypothesis. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah, this kind of technology is, I mean, man, technology is moving forward so quickly and this ability to really dig into 
like these subsets. I mean, the fact that, you know, we're not just looking at, oh, these are this general category of enhancers. Now it's like this category, but even more specific. Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. uh, everything. It's like it gets more complicated, too. Yeah, well, it's the resolution. It's like you were just talking yeah. about a picture of 100,000 nerves in the right, brain. Right. We're going to these levels of resolution yeah. where you can't even talk to me about something unless you've got the epigenome, the genome, the whole thing. And we're going to talk about that, hopefully, with David and Colin, because I think, that, you know, if anything, it was levering all the tools in the kit. It's their approach to defining, like you said, these subsets. These subsets of cells yeah. are so important to the function yep. of the whole population. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, it is time for us to get to the interview. Thanks for an awesome stem cell roundup this week, Dalen. Got it, Kiki. Thank you. You're welcome. That was great. (laughs) Yeah. But before we get into the interview, everyone, are you interested in organoids? I am. Anyway, Stem Cell Technologies would like to present Dr. Benjamin Friedman in a webinar titled Recreating Disease with Kidney Organoids and CRISPR everything we've been talking about today. Dr. Friedman leads a research group at the University of Washington in Seattle, where his team is devoted to the reconstitution of regeneration and disease mechanisms in organoids to guide therapy development. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can view the recorded webinar at www.stemcell.com slash kidney organoid webinar. That's stemcell.com slash kidney organoid webinar. You can also catch his interview on the podcast, Bino. He was so good. Yes, he was great. We've spoken with him, and he was fantastic and put Dalen in his place. (laughs) 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 You can hear it happen all year. That's right. Okay, let's get into our interview. We have two guests today. Dr. David Knapp, who has completed his Ph.D. in the Experimental Medicine Program at the University of British Columbia in the lab of Connie Eves, and he has moved on to explore synthetic biology in Tudor Fogel's lab at the University of Oxford, and also Colin Hammond, who is currently a PhD student, getting ready to defend his thesis in Connie Eves' lab. Let's get into the news. All right, David, can you please start us out by introducing yourself and your research interests, how you have moved from this blood stem cell biology to synthetic biology and what your path has been. My name is David Knapp. I originally actually started out working in a bit of virology in uh, Richard Harrigan's lab over at St. Paul's, but I was interested in regenerative medicine. So I went to the lab of Connie Eves, where I was studying essentially what it means to really be a stem cell. It's a question that seems to have a very easy answer, but we've seemed to debate every week for lab meeting for a couple hours. And uh, really getting down to the single cell level, I think has really been sort of key in my research path and trying to understand how function actually relates back to the molecular state of those cells using various analytical tools. How I've gone to synthetic biology was that I saw this cool set of techniques. And essentially, I was trying to think, how could I bring that in and apply them to a meaningful system? In my case, I'm hoping to bring it back to ask questions both about stemness, but also about more generally cellular identity. So that's sort of uh, what brought me to where I currently sit. All right, Colin, you're still on the march there in uh, Connie's lab, working it out. Why don't you tell us, you know, David, he's moved on now to synthetic biology. I don't know what's wrong with real biology, bro. Come on. You're still stuck in the world of the real. Can you tell us what you're uh, working towards with your PhD? I joined Connie's lab back in 2014. And actually, my original focus was going to be studying uh, chronic myeloid leukemia, another area that Connie's very invested and very much an expert in. But within the first couple of months, I was working quite closely with uh, David here, who very graciously took me on as an understudy. And uh, I quickly saw that these normal hematopoietic stem cells are actually very interesting and many properties we still don't know about at all. We did quite a bit of work with the uh, cord blood system, but lots of questions are still 
at hand in processes of how these hematopoietic stem cells change through development and aging and very interesting things have been happening recently with the high amount of clonal hematopoiesis as a factor of a normal age and very much leukemia is still a age-related disease. So I'm working more on development and aging aspects of hematopoietic stem cell properties. So let's get toward this paper that you have both published together in Nature Cell Biology uh, with Connie Eaves. David, maybe you can give us an introduction to what you did in looking at this CD33 subset of human cord blood cells. So yeah, essentially we were starting out with the CD49F subset, which John Dick published a few years back. It's getting more and more years back every time I look at it, but... (laughs) (laughs) Time does that, yeah. Yeah, it has around 10% purity of uh, cells that will repopulate an immunodeficient mouse up to about 30 weeks. We were interested in seeing, we know that that's a subset or whether that actually is just an aspect of our measurements. We wanted to see, is it really a homogeneous population or is there clear heterogeneity within that 49F fraction? So to do that, we took a number of molecular approaches. So we did things like uh, CYTOF analysis, as well as single-cell RNA-seq and uh, single-cell methylomes. And then we combine that with different single-cell functional analyses using index sorting, which is actually a very, very old technique that's sort of resurfaced in the past couple of years, where when you sort out your cell, you get for that individual cell what all of its surface markers were at the time you sorted it. And then you can go on and do your functional assays or your molecular assays. And because you knew what that surface markers were, you're able to then map back and forth between the functional and the molecular. And by doing that, we were able to see that there was a subset within this 49F population, which seemed to be much better at giving secondary repopulation. So rather than just going on and doing this 30 weeks of repopulation in a mouse, you could then take those cells back out, transplant them into a second mouse and have them repopulate for another 20, 30 weeks and still have a robust clone. That was essentially the foundation of this paper. And then looking back within that molecular data, which we'd also generated and trying to explain some of the molecular effects, which might be potentially causing the ability of these cells to read out over such a long time span. So David, let me ask you a question. Let me just preface this with telling you, as everybody who listens to the podcast knows, and Kiki will tell you, I love the blood. I love the blood so passionately. And I'm not going to get too deep into that because it's a bit disturbing. But it's no lie. It's not a lie. It's the truth. But the thing is, coming from someone who knows the blood, I can tell you that when I start, you know, I have a few papers that look at the blood and I'll get excited and I'll be like, yeah, we found this population. It's CDX, this, CD, this, negative, CD, blah, 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 blah. And then people are like, oh, my God, I lost you after the sixth CD. And maybe it's like a philosophical question I want to root it in because John Dick famously, he got on the map by doing a single cell reconstitution thing where he went right in the bone marrow with a single cell. But like, realistically, what we're talking about is percentages, right? Like, is there ever a cell that can be defined as specifically a stem cell? I mean, it's a functional definition, right? It can self-renew and form all the constituents. Can we ever label a cell and say that cell will do this or is it all everything now i guess we're realizing is kind of on a spectrum and which brings me to the question with respect to your study and this innovation you've crystallized and purified this more pure population but how does that like relate to the functional definition what does it mean to the patients in terms of like the benefit yeah so that's a really really Excellent question. I think that comes down really to the core of what the data is trying to tell us in this paper, which was we found that this marker was associated, but by no means were those the only cells that repopulated. We got 30-week repopulation from the 33 negative subset as well. And when you look at their molecular profiles, there are some differences, but they tended to be really quite subtle. And there's actually a lot of overlap there. So it suggests that possibly the states of these cells, they may be a little bit less easily definable and graspable that you can point at a cell and say, this is a stem cell. And 
by a stem cell, how many weeks do you mean? How long does it need to repopulate? In terms of, I guess, actually, sorry, going back to how this relates to patients, there's a number of different ways. Uh, there were a couple studies by the uh, Italian groups who were doing uh, gene therapy trials, who tracked over uh, long periods what happened to the clones. And in those cases, the patients, after only one year, did their clones stabilize, suggesting that the true sort of the cells that are going to take them through the rest of their life really didn't sort of stabilize out until a year post-transplant, which is actually longer than the classic 30-week definition. And there was a cell stem cell paper that came out a few years back uh, doing a 10-year tracking in macaws. And they also showed that really your stem cells don't even start to read out until six months. And the ones that uh, you know are going to keep going for that animal really don't display themselves consistently through to one year, potentially. Do you think, I mean, every time one of these new definitions comes out, I guess, is a kind of follow-up, do we have to reframe uh, what we know about all the previous studies that came before? Like, you're kind of implying there that the definition that we've commonly been using as like a long-term repopulating may not actually be the bona fide, or it may not be so clear. Is that right? Am I hearing right? I think that's certainly one of the potential messages here. And from those various other studies, some of which were actually in human patients as well. In a practical setting, though, no one really wants to do one year plus assays. I know we were very much not wanting to do that, but we set out to do this study as well. But that seems to be what the data is pointing towards. If we could pin down a nice molecular definition, of course, that would be far preferable because it's way faster time scale. But it seems to be maybe not so simple. And these things do have quite overlapping distributions, as I was mentioning. So they could actually be maybe not as clear cut. It could be that you inject a cell one day and it's going to read out and another day wouldn't. We actually don't know at this point. Colin, so from your side of things, you mentioned the myeloid leukemia in your personal introduction, and this obviously has implications towards that application. What are your thoughts on how this research could be used for immunotherapy or other applications related to the leukemia? So I'd say definitely one thing that's fairly interesting from this study of very normal hematopoietic stem cells relating to areas in the clinic is often in acute myeloid leukemia and other myeloid leukemias, elevated CD33 expression is usually quite a distinguishing feature where it has been thought that normal hematopoietic stem cells didn't have the CD33 marker on them. Therefore, some therapeutics targeting CD33 as an anti-leukemia treatment have been developed and some of them have related to issues that might be related to diminishing the hematopoietic stem cell compartment areas of not quite bone marrow failure, but definitely some cytopenias. So it might help us rethink some of the targeted strategies trying to preserve some of the hematopoietic stem cells. But in the case of a very severe acute myeloid leukemia, definitely diminishing the blasts first and maybe worrying about the long-term repopulating cells might be a bit of a secondary concern. Although with some of these CAR therapies, that could be actually quite an issue because those T-cells can stick around for a long time. So it really raises some questions about how you want to target with antibodies versus CARs as well, because maybe an antibody would be great to deliver, wipe out the blast, wipe out their bone marrow as well, give them a new one. But uh, if your CARs are going to stick around for many years, you might be a little bit in trouble. Yeah, well, that's a great lead in, I guess, or segue to a question I had for Colin, because, you know, still being in the process And David, too, I mean, you just got out of your training and now are on to your kind of interim training period. The field is moving so fast and a huge development, it seems, in just the last weeks is this idea of using CRISPR to kind of implement the CAR T therapy. And a lot, we've talked on the podcast about a whole myriad therapies, some avoid the kind of cytokine release syndrome. There's a lot of ways to skin a cat, it seems with a new kind of hematopoietic-based therapies for cancer treatment, but also everything, you know, any hematological malignancy, including HIV. What's it like for you guys? When you envision your future, I think for a lot of scientists, like when I was coming up, we were constantly kind of pushed toward basic, 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 you know, just focus on the problems. But you guys are in a field where it seems like all the problems are ones where like the 
there's clinical solutions there lying there with your specialty being the, the means. Are you focused on clinical application of your science, would you say more so than maybe a previous generation that was more focused on kind of basic foundational science, would you guess? It's definitely something you think about in the background of how might this research that I'm doing when I'm staring down a microscope, you know, five, six, seven hours a day, what is this going to pay off in, in about five, 10 years for a patient's perspective or some sort of potential therapeutic? But I think in the day-to-day, very focused on a lot of the practical, basic science problems that we still don't quite understand about especially these single hematopoietic stem cells, at least as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. We're still training scientists well. (laughs) (laughs) At least Connie is. Connie, kudos to you. You're keeping their eyes on the ball. Yeah. David, you looked like you were going to jump in on that, on the end of that answer there. I do agree that it's very interesting times for the number of technologies which we can actually apply to these things. Obviously, we need to be cautious because there's always issues with off-targets. CRISPR-Cas9 is one of the mainstays of SynBio now, so I'm working with it on a daily basis. And so there's always that worry about these off-targets, even though if you compare the number of off-targets you get from a Cas9 cut to a six-hour plane ride, it's actually lower. But (laughs) nonetheless, there's still some issues, but there's so much momentum now moving forward to clinic with some of these things, it's hard not to get excited about them. Like I know Matthew Portus was here talking a few weeks ago, and he's aiming for some clinical trials coming up in sort of towards the end of this year already. I believe he was talking about for sickle cell. I know that there's just so many other groups, not just for blood too, but for so many other different tissues and diseases that you're starting to be able to actually move some of these cellular therapies more towards clinic rather than being strictly basic. Although, of course, I fully think if we just start applying, we're going to lose all of the uh, new clinical applications. We'll have used up all of our basic knowledge and are going to have to go back. So I think the basic questions need to sort of drive the next generation of these therapies. Colin, I'm just curious, since you're still in Connie's lab and you're actively working on your PhD at the moment, How are you continuing this line of research? What new questions are you looking at? So as I alluded to a little bit in my introduction, a lot of this work that we've been doing in uh, examining some of the heterogeneity and some of the single cell properties of hematopoietic stem cells has been done in cord blood. It's, It's very nice and easy to get from the Women's and Children's Hospital here in Vancouver. But in terms of applications to leukemias, lymphomas, still typically very much adult or elderly patients. We're trying to extend some of these analyses through hematopoietic stem cells in the adult system, as well as another co-worker in the lab, another PhD student is working more on fetal liver development angle. So we're trying to catch a bit of a changing properties of hematopoietic stem cells throughout this timeline of a human lifespan, since there have been quite a few findings that these properties are not constant over the entire life of the organism. Regenerative ability seems to decline. Some of the lineage output seems to be affected, more of a myeloid swing away from lymphoid. So really trying to hone in on a single cell level how the properties of this metabolic stem cell compartment changes over time. David, how about you? I mean, you're SynBio slant now. Is that going to incorporate your hematopoietic knowledge? Are we talking about synthetic hematopoietic cells, or are you going in a more like synthetic yeast type level? I'm certainly looking still within the human system. So in general, I'm trying to look at the more general question of cell identity, what actually defines that using some synthetic biology circuits that we're currently developing. So essentially from almost a reprogramming angle, how we can adjust some of these properties in sort of a directed manner as opposed to just reading out what's already there. And essentially it involves just making minor tweaks to the cell circuitry and then measuring how that actually is going to affect the cell. My current applications are actually focused on neural and liver, but I do hope to bring that back towards the uh, hematopoietic angle at some point in the future. I see. So it's not like ground up George Church style making a cell out of just amino acids. It's more like engineering. Yeah. Existing baseline. I see. 
so what's the, your ultimate goal there? Is it therapeutic? Or I guess you you said it. You're really more focused on fate, identity, and specification thereof, huh? Yeah, although I do think that that could be used for a therapeutic angle at some point for, say, making cells for regenerative medicine in a more efficient manner, since right now, essentially every method I know is extremely inefficient. Yeah, making those cells, it's a huge issue right now. I mean, people want to create regenerative organs, right? For each patient, their own organs, no issues with immune rejection and that whole story. But there are so many levels of advancement that need to be attacked before we even get there. The whole story. I'm really interested to hear, I guess, uh, both David and Colin's answer to this. But like, you know, looking at this idea of regeneration and creating not just blood cells, but any kind of cell. You mentioned earlier, David, that it was just really unclear. There, There's this kind of that cell identity kind of changes and shifts. And we're looking at these markers, but the markers aren't always necessarily the right markers or the same markers. Do we have any idea how to figure out when it is going to be the right marker? So I guess that is a big question of, is there a right marker? Because these surface markers, we know that they can be regulated so quickly. I've looked at, for example, 49F, the marker itself. If you put the cell into culture, depending on the cytokine conditions, within four hours, you can actually completely change the expression patterns of 49F itself. So whether or not there actually will be a set of surface markers that can a priori define functional cell population is a huge question mark. Maybe once we start drilling down to sort of epigenetic analyses and other molecular analyses, like the uh, methylome that we did in this paper seemed to sort of be our best segregator of being able to actually pull out some of those 33 positive cells at a molecular level. So maybe by doing either combinations or some more of the epigenetic analysis, we might be able to get a little bit closer towards a concrete definition of at least what it can do now. Whether that's what it can do at a future time point, of course, is always uncertain. Well, I guess a big part of it is identifying what the phenotype is, right, in the cord blood. And as, you know, moving into SynBio that you are, is the idea that then you can enforce that identity on more generic or easily accessible or obtainable cell? Or do you think that, like, the intrinsic identity of a hematopoietic stem cell is going to remain a mystery? I certainly hope that we can elucidate it, at least insofar as the general circuits which control the behaviors that we're interested in, like, say, being able to make a red cell or a T cell, for example. So certainly, I hope that the stuff I'm working on now towards cell identity could potentially be applicable to making cells with a given function at some reasonable level of purity. And Colin, you mentioned the this kind of ties into, you know, the phenotype with age. Why do we end up with, you know, blood diseases, leukemias as you more often as you age? Or why am I going to get neurodegeneration as I get older? You know, what is happening to these cell phenotypes and why are they changing so much? That is a fantastic question that I wish I had a solid answer to do. But it's quite interesting. And so in the blood system and in other tissue systems, this, this issue of clonal hematopoiesis or clonality of repopulating cells responsible for regenerating a tissue that are typically marked with mutations found very commonly in, in the cancers of that tissue. This has been seen in the skin, in the blood, where I'm most familiar with it. But often these cells that are marked by mutations, most notably DNMT3A, TET2, are otherwise functioning quite normally. They're able to differentiate properly. They're repopulating all right. Uh, some of these patients with these normal mutations never develop any kind of leukemia. Some of them do. More deeply sequencing techniques have found that, that even people sort of in their 20s, 30s are marked by clones with these carrying these mutations. So I think it's going to be very interesting figuring out maybe what some of these factors may do to promote the acquisition of maybe a second hit or some sort of other alteration that might lead to something a little bit more drastic, full-blown leukemia, as of yet still very active area of research. I was just reading a paper the other day that was looking at DNMT3A and TET2 and suggesting that they may arise in different stages within the hematopoietic hierarchy and may help influence 
differentiation capability of those cells. So it could be a very long, progressive change that eventually may erupt in something. So very hard to say. Yeah. And then, you know, as David referred to the epigenetic changes, you know, maybe it's because somebody eats too much red meat or doesn't exercise or flies too often. You know, (laughs) there are so many factors. All of this stuff is just fascinating and all the details that will potentially lead us into these treatments and hopefully allow people to live healthier lives longer at some point in the future is wonderful. But you guys, as Dalen has said earlier, you're in the early stages of your careers right now. We end our interviews usually with a last question. And our last question kind of gets at the uh, some kind of advice to young scientists. But since you're both young scientists, this I'm gonna I'm going to approach this a little bit differently. So first for Colin, watching David transition into his postdoc career and watching others around you make transitions, what are you observing in these transitions that you think might be helpful to your own career advancement? And then second for David, since you have made this jump into postdoc, what did you learn from making your transition into the postdoc that you think would have helped you to understand as a PhD student? Well, I think one of the things I can quite strongly say from observing David and other people graduate from Connie's lab is it it takes a lot longer to write up your final thesis than you would think. So start it early. That's going to be my plan. And uh, in trying to find a postdoc, interview, 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 find a lab that uh, fits with sort of the research that uh, you're interested in. But finding a lab where you can actually work with the other scientists on a day-to-day basis and get along with them quite well, I think is very important. So that would be what I would say. I wish I had Colin's advice when I was writing up my thesis. I wrote the (laughs) vast majority of it in two weeks, two very sleepless weeks, which uh, had I known in advance, I would have certainly given myself a little bit longer. In terms of uh, making the actual transition, I did interview at a bunch of places and it was quite challenging to find a good fit, but I think I did in the end. Make sure to go somewhere where they're going to give you the opportunities to apply for your own grants. Like I was able to apply and got a grant last year over here, which was very nice and just really network. I think I went to a lot of conferences. Connie was very gracious in allowing me to go all over the world, really. And I got to speak to so many people and that's given me so many different opportunities to collaborate and to potentially have openings for other career moves down the line. So I think that's quite important. One last postscript question, Kiki. I'm sorry. But everyone, every time I do talk to anybody who's not a scientist, they say, oh, you're a scientist? Tell me, should I save my kid's cord blood? You guys know the answer. Yes, no, and also yes for now and yes for the future. I always say that we don't know what the applications are going to be in the future. So could you just give me a hard answer on that so that I can have something to tell these people? Maybe, David, you could talk about the benefits now and Colin in the future, potential benefits. What do you say? Can you help me? So at the present time, the amount of stem cells in in a given cord will only be enough to really treat you for a childhood leukemia. So barring advances in being able to grow these cells ex vivo, which currently there are many trials into, but none has actually given us a definitive, yes, this works yet. So realistically, at the moment, it would be useful probably for the first five years. And then after that point, it's a great benefit to research and to advancing the field. And maybe once they can grow them more down the line, it could be useful. But there's going to be potentially a long gap while that's still being figured out. All right. We got a hard maybe from David. Colin, maybe you could talk about in the future, if we did some good stuff with CAR-T and all kinds of expansion ex vivo, what are some like beyond like leukemia? What are some indications that I could tell people to get excited about if they're not, if they don't get sick, God forbid, in the first five years of their life? So I know that there's many other uses that people are trying in clinical trials for cord blood. The degree of success is hotly debated. So I can't really speak to whether they'd be particularly useful barring that uh, expansion scenario. 
I think that we will be able to very likely expand them through some method in sort of the next 20 years. And there's all sorts of things you could potentially envision uses for even allergies and modifying your immune system in various ways. So once they can be grown, it could be a useful resource, say, 20 years down the line. But uh, for the time being, I'd have to say that uh, sort of five-year mark would be my estimate. Amazing. So we got a maybe for now, and we got an if-then for the future. Yes! <laughs> but that's the truth, man. That's the truth. Yeah, that sounds like some bet hedging there. I don't know. <laughs> Five to ten years. Well, Five to ten uh, years. I, was, I thought that was a pretty, pretty solid yes yeah. for now, just in case you happen to get leukemia or one of your siblings does. I think that was a very honest answer, and I think it's also the true answer. So I commend you. Clearly, you know what you're talking about. I'm just going to refer all my friends to you. All right, leave your email. <laughs> all right. Okay, so unfortunately, we have lost Colin at the very end of our interview here. But David, thank you very much for joining us today. It's just been wonderful getting to speak with you and Colin. Colin, I think, is uh, he went to write his thesis. That he must have dropped out. He said he was going to start early. We reminded him that he needed to do some writing. So he's back at it. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. That's right. Good luck in all of your synthetic biology work. I can't wait to hear of uh, your exploits there. And um, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com and tune into our next episode. Daylin, David, Colin. That concludes episode 122 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for joining us for another great show. Mm-hmm.